Welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast, episode 10. That's right, we've made it all the way to double figures. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, and I hope you're having fun trying to work out on which day these episodes will be released. I've received a few emails from people recently saying, Aha! You're doing Wednesdays. And the answer is no, I'm I'm not. I'm making it up as I go along. It's a total lottery. Just depends on which day my guests are available and I have enough ideas. I got an email last week with a suggestion. And that email read Quirk of late eighteenth, early nineteenth century English, the use of the F character where we now use the S make the distinction. Was it pronounced differently? When was it abandoned? Who abandoned it first, English or Americans? Now, this isn't quite a Q&A question because it's not about me. But it did fascinate me, so I started looking into it. Before I did, I actually had no idea what all that was about. I spent a great deal of my time at university poring over primary source documents from Britain and America that were written in the 18th century, and of course I saw it everywhere. But because I knew vaguely that the character was pronounced S rather than F, I just made the substitution in my head and moved on. As a kid, it confused the hell out of me because the character looks exactly like an F. And so until I was told otherwise, I read it as such, which led to me sounding out Thanksgiving as thankfgiving and ending up extremely confused. But today, inspired by this email, I finally looked up what on earth that is all about. And now I know a little more about it than I did before. So I thought I would share what I found. Or maybe for what I sound. First things first, or first things first, that character is not an F. It resembles an F, but it is, and it always was, a completely different character. It's a long S, or a medial S, or an initial S. It first showed up in Roman cursive, and then it made its way into German and Spanish and French and Italian printing. And, of course, it thereby made its way into British and colonial American printing, too, where it was used widely between the invention of the printing press and about 1803, when the Times of London decided that it was archaic and got rid of it. After that, it was used sporadically in printing in Britain, but as the 19th century progressed, it was increasingly deemed unfashionable, and like most things that have been deemed unfashionable, it slowly slipped away. In handwritten copy, it stuck around in Britain for a little longer, but it did not survive the end of the 19th century. Now, it's tough to tell precisely when, because there were no centralized rules. Thankfully, Britain and America have never had the equivalent of the French Académie Française, but 
As you might expect, Americans do seem to have abandoned it earlier than the Brits. For example, despite long S's being all over the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, by the time Britain and America went to war in 1812, the two countries had diverged. The United States' Declaration of War contained only short S's. The British Declaration of War contained long S's. So how's that for two nations divided by a common language? The usage is complex. There are quite a few weird and contingent rules, some of which don't make sense given modern English and the way we write. But the main purpose in 17th and 18th century English was to denote a soft S. So the sort of S you hear in success rather than in, say, windmills. That's why you see it in the word Congress, in all those old Revolutionary-era documents, and in the word Majesty in British documents of the same era. The first pressing of Paradise Lost, for example, had medial S characters in both Paradise and Lost, but not in the word Books, which also appeared on the cover. As a... Pretty hard and fast rule, this medial S would replace the first S when the letter appeared twice in a row, or a single S if it appeared on its own, but only at the end of a given word. Now, today, we would draw many of these distinctions, although certainly not all of them, by using the letter Z, but in the 17th and 18th centuries, that was almost unheard of. Even now, Z is the least used letter in the alphabet in English-speaking countries, and in Britain, it's almost never used. And when it is, it's typically used in words that have been stolen wholesale from other languages or adopted from the United States. The final thing I learned, which doesn't really fit here, but which I found interesting nevertheless and wanted to share, is why the ampersand is called the ampersand. So for a while... The ampersand was included in some English alphabets as the 27th letter. And when referring to it, it was customary for speakers to say and, and then to add per se at the end to make it clear that the speaker was referring to the letter, not merely going on to say something else. Over time, via the magic of slurring, this evolved into and per se and, and eventually everyone gave up and called it the ampersand instead. So there you have it, a brief history of the long S in American and British English, which naturally brings me to the topic of gay marriage this issue came up again this week because the Senate passed a bill that recognized gay marriage at the federal level and that required all states to recognize marriages performed in other states, providing that those marriages were between two people. Now, the editors of National Review put out a editorial opposing this bill. I also opposed the bill, but because it lacked sufficient conscience and religious liberty protections, and we had one of those disagreements that we sometimes have at National Review. So I thought I would invite Michael Brendan Doughty, who you will know from the Editor's Podcast and elsewhere, to 
disagree with me. Michael, welcome to my podcast. It's a pleasure to be on the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. Wow, you're promoting it better than me. So what I thought I would do is give you my views of this issue so that we're clear from the outset what I'm arguing and what I'm not, and then you can tell me why I'm wrong. Okay. All right, so here are my views. That under our constitutional order, governments can decide how to define marriage. That those governments, when doing so, have to stay in their lane. So the federal government can't tell the states how they have to define marriage. That the Supreme Court's decisions in this area, in Windsor and Obergefell, which took the power I've just described away from the federal government and the states, are lies. That as a matter of political preference, I see there's nothing wrong with our government's redefining marriage to recognize changes in society, in this case, gay relationships, and that I support them doing so, providing that those redefinitions are accompanied by extremely robust protections of the dissenters' conscience rights and their religious liberties, which would, yes, include what some critics will call discrimination. So why am I wrong to hold this position? Well, um, I mean, you, you didn't describe, you just said that it's legitimate for governments to recognize gay marriages. Uh, you actually didn't argue why they should. No, I haven't yet. I haven't. But I, but I do think that they should. But the reason I think that's important is because I think that this is not preempted by the 14th Amendment, as the Supreme okay. Court pretended that it was. I think the governments can choose not to do it. And I think it's important to say that because some people will listen and say, well, the government can't do that because the 14th Amendment mandates recognition of gay marriage. I think that's nonsense. Okay. Okay. Right. So, I, I mean, I'm... I. You know, in thinking about this, I I didn't want to focus too much on just the constitutional issues where I think we are pretty closely in agreement. Um, I I would say that I, I mean I would almost want to start arguing against the recognition of same sex couples as married couples. Uh, I think that's where I would I would start. Uh, which is that um, these are not marital unions, you know, and it's not cheap to divert us to the original definition, you know, the Roman, the Latin word matrimonium, where we're obviously talking about something that was conceived with the idea of motherhood in mind. But a marriage is between a man and a woman, or a man and many women, perhaps, or a woman and several men because of the sexual correspondence between men and women that sexual unions tend to beget children and marriage has always been extended to infertile couples, those that are too old to conceive or that just lack the reproductive capacity for health reason, not because, you know, marriage wasn't premised on the idea legally that all male uh, female pairs are fertile but that all children are the product of a male female pairing and that's why we have the laws we have and, and of course this inheritance that we have in our laws 
has entailments in it that only apply to male-female pairings, that you would only care about if they were true sexual unions. A male-male pairing or a female-female pairing, there is not the same risk of reproduction. Therefore, you don't have to have laws about governing the consanguinity of a relationship, right? Outlawing cousin marriage between same-sex couples, for instance. There's no public health reason to do so. And I've opposed this, you know, I'll just give you some history. I I never really wrote on this issue very much uh, as it was first becoming uh, controversial. Uh, Actually, I think the first time I did was in 2008 after Proposition 8 in California narrowly struck down California's provision for same-sex marriages. And what I noted at the time, basically what I noted was that, okay, if marriage traditionally understood is this bedrock institution, um, it's hanging on by a thread if it's if it's only prevailing by 51%. Obviously, pe- a majority of people are tending towards no longer adhering to it. Uh, and I sort of see, I see it as a fait accompli that this, this alteration was going to happen. But that doesn't change my conviction that these unions aren't marriages. I mean, they're not even strictly sexual partnerships because there's no risk of sexual reproduction in them. They are erotic partnerships. We had forms of legal recognition of erotic partnerships in concubinage laws in Western civilization. They're recognized as something quite different from marriage. Western societies gradually eliminated them precisely because they tended to produce children that were fatherless, socially fatherless, not biologically fatherless, obviously. And socially fatherless children are a net cost and risk and a danger to society. And what we find is the the legal advancement of gay marriage has almost always accompanied some kind of attempt to recognize children that are being taken care of in the household uh, that two male partners make or two female partners make. All right. Well, so before we get to that, before yeah. we get to that, I have a couple of questions based on what you just said. Sure. So the first one is when you were defining marriage yeah at the outset you included both polygamy and polygyny in your description yes but you presumably oppose i oppose reintroducing those yes uh, <laughs> yeah but i'm i can't honestly say they were they aren't marriages when they um but if they're marriages why not recognize them why not well just because you don't uh, i don't want to a society characterized by and reproduced by polyg- polygamous marriages, which tend toward which tend toward a kind of social inequality that I find incompatible with democracy and with um, I also you know find it it tends uh, to go along with it tends to be partnered with consanguineous marriages in history. So you think one of them is a pragmatic objection and the other is a category mistake? Yes. Yeah, that's ex- that's exactly right. That's And on that category mistake, what do you think of the argument that yes, there is of course a difference between straight marriage and a gay marriage in that straight marriages in most circumstances can produce children and gay marriages by definition cannot. But there are all sorts of other areas in which the legal construction that is marriage that is almost impossible to replicate in any other way 
is important to those who enter into it, irrespective of potential for creating children. I hear libertarians say quite frequently they would like to get the government out of marriage. And the problem with that is that on a practical basis, it is essentially equivalent to saying they would like to get rid of the government, which is, of course, fine. And in many ways, the libertarians would cop to that. And yeah. in many ways, I would agree with them. But if, for example, mm-hmm. you are going to have an immigration system, you're going to have to determine who will be let into the country and on what basis. So if you get rid of marriage completely, you're going to have people who say, well, hold on a moment. In Holland, I was married to this woman. She is my wife. We live together. We have common property and so on and so forth. I now want to move to the United States. Is that relationship recognized as a basis for immigration under American law? And whatever you call it, call it marriage, call it a left-handed teacup, doesn't matter. The American government is going to have to decide yes or no. Mm-hmm. Isn't it the case that irrespective of children, we in our society base a great deal of our law and our society around institutions into which two people have entered and that there is a strong argument for allowing gay people to join them because otherwise they end up stranded they end up excluded from those institutions for not an especially good reason. So the idea being that it's a, it's a, I mean, I think what you're doing is you're kind of sneaking in the redefinition. I'm, 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 I'm Well, I'm resisting. asking you to what extent it's semantic in that, are you saying that if it were deemed a civil partnership, it would be acceptable? Is it merely the word that bothers you? Uh, no, it's not. It's not merely the word, but the word. But the words do matter, and um, I don't think it's tendentious, right, to to insist on realities, right? That you know, whatever uh, a friend of mine, like Andrew Sullivan, and his his, uh, you know, the man he calls his spouse, that their partnership is not really akin to what I have with my wife um, for, for reasons rooted in our, our biology. And, and again, in my wife and I are sexually complementary and corresponding in a way that they are not. And that means something very different. Um, right. But, but here's the point. In what context? Because if you were to say to me, when it comes to the church, I want a hard line drawn between your marriage, Charles, and Andrew Sullivan's marriage. I would say, fine, also none of my business. If you said to me, there is obviously a material difference in how my relationship with my wife and Andrew Sullivan's relationship with his husband are likely to interact with the law around children. Mm-hmm. That would obviously be correct. But when we're talking solely about government, when we're talking solely about legal recognition, 
there is no difference whatsoever between me marrying a non-American citizen and petitioning for her to come over and Andrew Sullivan marrying a non-American citizen and petitioning for him to come over. And it surely it doesn't matter whether or not the, the church would recognize that or in other areas the difference between the two relationships would be acute. There are common elements, right? Well, I mean, it's, it's quite a different thing. I mean, what, um, what's the, the basis of similarity? That it's a romantic partnership? Is that, is that it? I mean... Yeah, I think if we look at the world as it exists, we can see that an enormous number of people who are both straight and gay invest their love and commitment and time and hopes in one person. One of the reasons that we haven't had a great deal of pressure to recognize polygamous or polygynous marriages, in my estimation, is that most people don't want them. Even those articles you read in the New York Times about, right? Uh, you know, I left my husband and now I have three husbands. <laughs> you know, that they, they inspire ridicule and revulsion and they are pushed to the margins almost universally whereas i think we can see just as a, a matter of elementary fact that quite a lot of gay people want to get married or whatever you want to call it i mean you wrote in a piece responding to david french marriage is an entailment of the law written on men's hearts the natural law right but isn't it the case within a naturally evolved human world that a lot of people have that attitude towards people of the same sex? Well, I, I think I would ask you, why do you think the demand for this emerged when it did and where it did in history? Is it a, a story of previously it was all just there was heteronormative oppression and that sexual desire that you find normal now was just entirely suppressed or that did it express itself differently <laughs> in a way that made it seem obviously not a candidate for marriage-like uh, treatment in the law or society? And wh why do you think it's come up now? Well, I do think there was quite a lot of oppression yeah but no i don't think that's the sole reason let's suppose that you are right about the way in which marriage has historically been perceived and i think you are i don't think that that necessarily diminishes the instinct to love one person i mean you're quite right that, listen you're you're quite right that there has been in history and there's actually a great book by Ferdinand Mount called The Subversive Family, which is kind of a, a myth-breaking book about the way that what, what Mount calls popular marriage has always frustrated the, the will of revolutionaries and, um, and utopians. That, in fact, you know, and he includes Jesus and Marx and all sorts of others in that list of people who uh, 
have found their their ideals for society interrupted by the fact that what most people in most of history have wanted is a partnership with one person right in whom they invest romantic feelings like romantic love was not invented in the middle ages <laughs> like like by uh people in court and court poets uh romantic love has existed for as long as as people have and most people want to marry the person that they feel this romantic love for and form a family with them um, funnily enough that's andrew sullivan's argument too is is he wanted the bourgeois element <laughs> right right well yeah i mean and i've had friends i mean i've had friends i was friendly with justin Romando, the the yeah. anti-war libertarian writer who took the the opposite view, which was expressed as late as I remember seeing an article in um, the nation as late as I think 2001 or 2002 uh, saying that, no, like what's great about being gay is that you are against the bourgeois norms. You are, you're against this sort of artificial institution of the family and you're in the vanguard of smashing it. And in a way, like as so often happens in America, you get both, I think you you get both the domesticated and the revolutionary principle brought together in some kind of synthesis, uh, which we have now. Um, I, I've, I'll answer my own question that I posed to you earlier. Why, why now? I think same-sex marriage only became thinkable really after um, the advent of reliable contraception for women and the idea that like, children are are not the implied and usual entailment in marriage but a kind of pure choice after marriage or within marriage you know and that's why you see like in people who um who write their own wedding vows now you know if you look to the the book of common prayer or to the traditional catholic liturgy around marriage those rites talk quite a lot about children to come and praying that you see your grandchild's grandchild in old age, et cetera. And it's kind of this multi-generational view of what's happening. Yeah. Uh, and that is just, that's disappearing almost entirely. Like when, when people write their own wedding vows, they, they do two things. They, they leave out two things that were in the traditional vows and liturgies, which is one children. And then two, uh, the people around them usually, right? Like this idea that the, the, the witnesses to the marriage and the society around it have a stake in the estate itself. So it is, I mean, I like, I agree with you in, in, or, or I agree that if we eliminate children from the marital equation and we eliminate the stake that society has in it generally, and it's just a kind of private contract, uh, between two people, then then yeah, of course it's going to look just uh, bigoted to exclude well homosexuals no, from do from, from engaging in it. But I mean, it would be just as bigoted to exclude two cousins from doing it. No, that that's your word, not mine. I think in one respect we agree on this. We've just come to different conclusions. I mean, so if, if I could answer your question too, I suppose there we do disagree, and that I think that marriage became thinkable for gay couples after homosexuality had been decriminalized and destigmatized uh, and that was the point at which people thought well if these relationships are being acknowledged 
and accepted, then they can be reflected in the law. It would have been unthinkable, of course, when homosexuality was criminal to recognize mm. on a legal basis the relationships that it had prohibited. But when it comes to the distinction that you're drawing, I think in one respect we agree, and, and that is that I see the government acceptance of gay marriage as being separate from a cultural or religious acceptance. And that's why I fit very awkwardly into the pro-gay marriage coalition. And not that I'm important enough for many people to think about this, but I'm often pushed to the margins of it. Because as I said at the outset, I don't think the 14th Amendment mandates this. And I also am extremely alarmed, albeit not surprised, by the way in which this innovation, and it is one, has been taken and used as a cudgel against dissenters and deployed as a means by which to attack those who cherish all of the historical and cultural and religious and you would say natural qualities that you have described. My approach, I suppose, is to separate out these two things almost entirely. Mm -hmm. And that's why I simultaneously think that it is fine for governments to say, look, we live in a country in which we have gay people and those gay people have monogamous relationships and they wish to be treated under federal and state law in the same way as heterosexual couples would be. But we are also going to pass, and this is why I opposed the bill that just went through because it didn't do this, we are also going to pass explicit protections, protections that really should be implied under the First Amendment in and of itself, that allow those who don't like this, who don't agree with it, not to be implicated by it in any way. Right. Well, I mean, obviously, I agree with you that, that it would be ideal, right, if I could continue to, you know, form businesses or, you know, or whatever, um, enterprises, institutions, whatever they may be, like, a, you know, say you have a Catholic college with a dorm room policy that allows those married right. in the Catholic church or in marriages recognized by the Catholic church, which, you know, the funny thing about the church, the church's role in this, and, and this is why the argument becomes complex, right, is, as, as you said, my, my definition was that this is an entailed in the order of creation itself as part of natural laws, a kind of consequence of who we are as human beings and a sexually dimorphic species. <laughs> and, you know, so the church has never, the Christian church at least, recognizes marriages made outside of itself, even if uh, the, the laws and cultures that foster those marriages are in some way, uh, you know, pagan or um, deficient. But where, where the basics are met, the basic definitions, man, woman, who are free to marry, that is, unmarried themselves, um, and that they've consented to the union freely, then they are are married 
um, especially after the the consummation of the of the union. So, in a sense, the church is not the church's own definition of marriage is not privatized to itself, and the state's definition of marriage is not free of the religious influences. And I, I no, but at what point does that become circular? Because as you wrote in your response to David French, and you just outlined here, unbaptized civilizations, as you put it, have recognized and solemnized right. marriage. But unbaptized civilizations now have also recognized and solemnized gay marriage. And in 50 years, people will say... Perhaps, perhaps, maybe, I mean, I think... Which ones have? I mean, I think we've, we've got... Well, the vast majority of what would have been called Christendom historically has recognized and solemnized gay marriage. Has, has adopted this. Very few outside of it. I, I did, I mean, I, am, I have seen some, like, uh, Nepal has a gay rights movement now, you know, and obviously is not a, a Christian civilization. So, yeah, that may come uh, at, at some point. It's not, uh, I don't think it's circular. I was, I was working up to the point that I am skeptical that the state redefinition of marriage can be contained to the civil sphere and not have implications for dissenters. Yeah, that's interesting. And and that's that's you know <laughs> like as you and I both know very well and, and most most people know that uh like there were there were very serious political consequences to the Church of England striking a different uh doctrine on marriage and divorce and remarriage. And while we don't have I, I do wonder if someone looking from the vast future, you know, the future ahead would also wonder, you know, looking back in the United States and saying, well, you know, gee, the, the, the civil recognition of same-sex marriage seemed to follow very quickly on the recognition of same-sex marriage by mainline Protestant churches that used to have the balance of power and influence culturally in the United States. Um, well, that actually raises what I suppose should be my final question, or we could talk about this all day, um, which is there are some social conservatives who will say, you know, this is them speaking, I oppose gay marriage, but it's the least of our worries. The, the, the core issue here is the abandonment of marriage culturally and politically from the 1950s onwards, the advent of no-fault mm-hmm. divorce, the huge increase in single-parent households, the divorce rate hitting, what is it, 50% more? Yeah. And that gay marriage is therefore at the bottom of the list. I, I think that's Kevin Williamson's view, or at least was when we were doing a podcast together. What do you think of that? And that's certainly, like, I've seen that from Peter Hitchens and other other writers it would be nice if I could. It would be nice if I could say that. I kind of wish I could say that, you know. Although I have a feeling like the gay men I know who are, are like closest to me aren't interested in marriage <laughs> themselves, uh, and I, I wonder if they would agree with me. I wonder if we should get like Doug Murray on uh, to give his thoughts on whether homosexuality is is something that belongs inside of marriage. I'm not sure. My problem is that, uh, as I was saying before, that the legal advancement of same-sex marriage has always been accompanied by this question of children in the household, whether it was the cases in Hawaii in the early 90s or Vermont in the late 90s, 
when the Vermont's court held that same-sex couples needed the same benefits from the state because of because of children, presence of children in the household. And marriage, traditional marriage was an institution that was meant to, in a sense, prevent the proliferation and creation of orphans and bastards. And by including same-sex marriage into the institution, you have created, and, and we have created, a demand for the creation of orphans. That is a, a, an expanding network in human flesh where women uh, sell their eggs, men sell their sperm, and effectively sell their own parental rights over their children. In fact, actually, that's putting it too mildly. I would say they are selling their children's rights to their own biological parents and profiting from this sale. And we are left now with no institution that embodies the ideal that children deserve the love and affection of the parents who conceived them. And, and that to me is going to be the, the, the difficult legacy. And I, I worry too about how the, the logic of equality in our society is going to work on this problem, which will be the definitional inequality between the kind of parenthood that exists in my house uh, and that that exists in the houses of people who contracted other people's genetic material to create their children. Um, you know, we are moving away from the natural family toward kind of commercial and court-appointed family ideal. And I'm curious how that logic is going to work out over the long term to really make myself appear wacky and beyond the pale. I mean, it just seems possible to me that the invention of reliable birth control just fundamentally makes human civilization impossible. That like, whether you believe God created us or evolution endowed us with our traits, that the thing that makes human civilization possible, this bond between the living unborn and the dead is somehow connected to our reproductive capacity. And when we can reliably shut that down, our other instincts work on us, our instincts to hoard pleasure for the day, to consume pleasures as we have them, to invest as much as possible in our firstborn children, even at the cost of children in the future. But all that kind of gets, militates against the idea of a future of human civilization altogether. So yeah, that that would that would be a problem that puts gay marriage into relief as a very tiny, <laughs> tiny one altogether. So it, that's a long way of saying I don't want to minimize what I think the social revolution is that we're undergoing, but also I think maybe there's a, a larger problem on the horizon. And on that bombshell, <laughs> as Alan Partridge used to say. <laughs> I'm going to end this because that is a massive topic that I should probably have you back on to talk about. <laughs> we'll, we'll see. Thanks, Charlie. We should talk about the Beatles or something next time. <laughs> I'll, I'll talk to you soon, Michael. All right. Take care. Bye. Welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast, Color Supplement. This is the part of the show that is in color. So if you have that setting on your phone, make sure that you turn it on now or you'll get it in black and white. And color is necessary for this next topic, which is the band K-1. 
Fleetwood Mac. Now, don't worry, it's not going to be another six-hour epic as we did on Political Beats a few months ago. It's going to be a much more focused, honed bit on Christine McVie, who was a member of the band, one of the longest-serving members of the band, and who unfortunately passed away this week at the age of 79. And I'm joined to talk about Christine McVie by Scott Bertram, who is one half of the Political Beats duo, and who thinks that Rumours, if I recall correctly, Scott, is the greatest rock record ever made. Charles, that is the argument that I made on our podcast, and I stand by that comment. I think we can assume, therefore, that if Rumours is the greatest rock record ever made, that you like Fleetwood Mac, and I assume that you liked Christine McVie. So I want to ask you a bit about Christine McVie. Because when I think of her, I think that she's the least famous major rock star in history. Is that fair? I think there's an outstanding argument to be made. And as I was considering our discussion today, I I thought of something that I I am not certain that we even mentioned during those six and a half hours on Fleetwood Mac on Political Beats, which was the rarity and the um, how unusual it was for someone like Christine McVie, meaning, let's just say, a female, to be fronting, writing, and singing for a major rock band in the 1970s. And of course, in the middle part of that decade, Stevie Nicks comes along, and you have two females uh, helping to front Fleetwood Mac. Christine McVie specifically, though, being un, say unheralded, but underrated, overlooked, I, I would say absolutely yes, because when people think of Fleetwood Mac, the two members who come to mind first are Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. The, the great love that they had between them, the love that was lost and crushed into dirt and dust, which led to rumors and, and other fine songs in their career. People forget or don't remember that Rumors also was inspired by the disintegration of Christine McVie's uh, marriage to John McVie, the bassist in Fleetwood Mac. But Nix and Buckingham always had the, the front uh, the front page news. They were the ones who were in front. She was behind. She was in front of a, a Hammond B3 or a keyboard or a piano. And though she would sing, uh, her, her songs don't necessarily resonate or are not quite remembered as well as those fronted by Stevie Nicks or even some fronted by Buckingham. But when I was becoming a Fleetwood Mac fan, I was drawn to Christine McVie's songs and her voice. And Stevie Nicks has an extremely distinctive voice, an extremely distinctive personality. But, you know, the whole flowing robe witch thing wasn't what drew me to Fleetwood Mac. It was those magnificent, clean, easy melodies that Christine McVie wrote for her songs. One of my favorite songs from Fleetwood Mac then and still now is Hold Me from Mirage which is in the early 80s. And that's a, that's a pure McVie song. I mean, Buckingham helps out immensely with the production and flushing out her ideas. But it begins with her sparkling piano. She sings a majority lead on the song. She's helped by Buckingham in some places. But songs like that, that, that's what drew me to Fleetwood Mac originally. And I think 
her contributions going all the way back to 1971, which she joined for Future Games. And then she stayed until 19, well, when everyone left in the early 90s. She always was able to contribute a gem of a song on each album. And then when she began to be more prolific in her writing, the success rate increased as well. And that golden period of Fleetwood Mac also is the golden period of McVie songwriting too. Yes, there's a, there's a bit of a paradox here in that, as you say, she's overshadowed by Lindsay Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, who have this on-off, mercurial, explosive love affair and are also extroverts in the band. Unlike Mick Fleetwood and John McVie, who she married, the band didn't get his name from her, although in a roundabout way it did, I suppose, because <laughs> she married John McVie and became Christine McVie, her Maiden name was actually Perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was Christine Perfect. <laughs> and yet, her contributions in the era that was marked by that Buckingham Knicks explosion are utterly extraordinary. She didn't become a, a backseat player. She wrote Don't Stop and Sugar Daddy and You Make Loving Fun and Say You Love Me, some of which were singles. I think three of those were were singles. And also, although she was, I think, arguably the most normal member, (laughs) she's the Paul McCartney of the band, she's the Michael Palin of the band, even she was in on some of the ridiculous Fleetwood Mac cocaine and divorce-inspired hedonism. I mean, You Make Loving Fun is a song about the band's lighting director with whom she had an affair. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, she writes about this affair and then the guy she's had an affair in spite of, her husband and then ex-husband, has to play bass on the song and then play it live for decades. <laughs> this is ultimate Fleetwood Mac still, right? Yeah. I, I, you know, she had that. And then if you move forward a bit, you know, Hold Me is essentially a retelling of her relationship with Dennis Wilson when Dennis Wilson's life was was not in great shape with, with the Beach Boys uh, before he ended up uh, drowning uh, and, and passing away. But she had a multi-year relationship with Dennis, Dennis Wilson as well. Her songwriting was such a, uh, a tonic for what was put forward by Buckingham and what was put forward by Nix. And if you go to Rumors and you look at the songs that all three of them wrote about their relationships falling apart, you have, of course, Buckingham's Go Your Own Way, right? this very bitter goodbye note, don't let the door hit you, uh, you know, a- as you leave. You have Nix who writes one of the most magnificent songs in Fleetwood Mac's history that isn't even on the album, uh, Silver Springs. And Silver Springs is the song in which she, she makes Lindsey Buckingham play next to him, uh, play next to her, I should say, as she utters the line, you will never get away from the sound of the woman who loves you, right? It's just this, this unbelievable connection that they have. And then McVie's contributions are, you make love and fun and don't stop. And You Make Love and Fun, yes, is, is still tawdry in a way that she's talking about this relationship she's having with a lighting director after being married to the band's bassist, but it's, it's more of a cheerful look at what's happening here. Oh, you'd it, never guess. Right. It's more, it's just, it's, 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 it's uplifting in a way. And, and Don't Stop, there are hints of darkness in, in, the, in the lyrics of Don't Stop that are sort of papered over because it became a Bill Clinton anthem. 
But on the whole, Don't Stop is a message from McVie to, to John saying, it's going to be all right. You know, there'll be other relationships. Don't stop thinking about tomorrow. Yesterday's gone. Try not to think about the times before. Think about times to come. And McVie's approach to those songs, you know, by and large, are more optimistic. She's not afraid to write the sweet love song, even if there are some, some, some gray clouds uh, up in the sky. She's not afraid to be a little more uplifting uh, uh, and sweeter. Uh, than Buckingham and Nix were in writing about love and relationships. I think that is reflected in her retirement because she seems to be the only member of the band who retired and then said, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't need touring. She said this much in interviews. She didn't need drugs. She did not become that aging rock star who spends every waking hour thinking back to that crazy night at the Coliseum in 1975. I mean, she she moved on. She came back for the reunion and then left very quickly and somewhat quietly. I, I you know right. I was paying attention pretty closely to the music scene at that time, and I don't remember a big deal being being made about Christine McVie is no longer touring with the band, hardly contributed to that album. Uh, Say you will in the early 2000s and was gone up until 2014 when she came back and did some more touring. In a way, uh, it's not a direct comparison, but I, I think of John Deacon from Queen, who after Freddie Mercury died, John Deacon said, that's it, I I'm done. And you actually hear from you know Brian May and Roger Taylor that they, they don't even talk much anymore. He, he totally removed himself from what the band was doing. And in a way, McPhee did that as well. Thankfully, I think because it led to more music, she did return in 14 and she and Lindsey Buckingham, who always, and again, Charlie, everyone talks about that Nix-Buckingham relationship, rightfully so. But the magic that McVie and Buckingham had, uh, not so much songwriting, they did write some, but the way that Buckingham was able to interpret and augment McVie's songs was magical. You know, she wrote some songs prior to Buckingham coming on, uh, Come a Little Bit Closer or Spare Me a Little of Your Love. And you just imagine what Buckingham could have done with them. And even on that first album, it sounded like Warm Ways. It's the kind of song she was writing in those albums previous. But when Buckingham got his hands on it and took it into the production room and, and did his magic, they connected in a way that really made her songs sparkle and you make love and fun i mentioned on the podcast we did together on political beats is probably my favorite fleetwood mac song i listen over and over and always hear something new that i love but what i love is the care and attention that buckingham gave to the song that was not his that mcvee wrote and brought to him and brought to the band and the way he arranged it and the way that he plays his guitar in just the way needed to augment that marvelous melody that mcvee brought to the band Buckingham and McPhee put out an album in 2017, and it's not classic in, in, a, in a grand sense of the word, but it's fun to hear those two working together again. All right, well, let's finish by stealing a feature of Political Beats, but in this case, limiting it just to Christine McVie. So what are your favorite five Christine McVie songs? All right, I didn't know we were going to do this. So I'll start with two very obvious ones. Uh, you Make Love and Fun, which I just extolled the virtues of, and, and Hold Me, which I talked about previously, I think are two just amazing Christine McVie songs. If we go back to the pre-Buckingham Knicks era, uh, I think Spare Me a Little of Your Love from Bear Trees is probably the first 
great sort of California pop song that she wrote. It's such a simple track behind her, and her voice, as often as the case, carries that melody through. And it it contains one of the great McBee lines because it again goes to the the, the the core elements of some of her songwriting. She says, "Now I know how the sun must feel every time it shines." Like that's a that's a that's a really that's a McVie sentiment that you would not hear from Buckingham and you would never hear from Stevie Nicks. Um, I like the way I feel from from Mystery to Me. I'd probably put that one on the list. And I, I don't want to steal one from the self-titled album because I know you were a massive fan of Say You Love Me. So I'll give people one other one to, to head back to. And uh, I, I will say, come a little bit closer uh, from that last album before Buckingham Nicks joined. Listen for the pedal steel uh, guitar that is just a marvelous accompaniment to that Christine McBee song, Come a Little Bit Closer. Excellent. Well, I'm going to give you mine quickly. I mentioned them, I think. Uh, you make loving fun, obviously. Say you love me, sugar daddy, and don't stop. And then I'm going to add to it over and over, which I know this will annoy Jeff Blaha, Scott, is <laughs> the only song I like on Tusk. <laughs> I love the beginning. When I first sat down and listened to that record and over and over began, I thought, oh, this is going to be absolutely great. And it wasn't. <laughs> it went in a different direction. Went in a different direction. We'll, we'll put it that way. If you want to hear my, my full riff disappointing jeff blayhart then you should listen to the political beats episodes on fleetwood mac well scott thank you so much for joining me before i let you go where can people find you and what is the next episode of political beats they should look forward to uh you can find uh the show at uh, political beats at national review we do run the patreon side of things too which includes higher audio quality and uh early release and also exclusive monthly episodes exclusive content each and every month and what i think the next full episode we are scheduling at the moment there'll be one before the end of the year but i know the next exclusive content episode which patreon supporters can get a hold of is our annual ask us anything episode which usually results in some very fun answers and so it's our december uh, episode for the patreon supporters which will be putting out a call for questions here in the next week or two and always get great questions from those of us uh, those of you i should say who support us via patreon all right well thank you so much for joining me thank you charles and now we'll take a short break before we return for hours 2 through 12. Nah, not really. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>